0: You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, your host, Ben Eagle. Please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you are listening. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 220 of the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. Today I'm speaking to a man who is no stranger to agri-podcasting or indeed broadcast journalism in general. I am really pleased to say that Surrey Farmer and Farmer's Weekly podcast host Hugh Broom is with me. Hugh worked full time as a broadcast journalist in radio for 10 years, first in local radio in Reading, before moving to Capital Radio, LBC and Classic FM in London, and then going part time with BBC Radio 5 Live doing news and travel until it moved to Manchester, which I'm guessing was a little bit of a trek from the farm. Uh, Throughout that period, he was also running the family farm in Surrey, where he's the fourth generation to farm there. The business is currently focused on rearing dairy beef cattle, but in the past also had a sheep enterprise and various direct sales ventures. From 2004 to 2009, he wrote for Farmers Weekly, and so when they launched their podcast at the beginning of COVID, he was really the obvious choice to sit alongside Johan Tasker as co-host. He sat on numerous NFU committees in various roles, including as Southeast Livestock Chair and National Beef Chair. Today, we're going to discover more about what drives this particular farmer to do quite so much. Hugh, welcome to Meet the Farmers. Thank you for doing this. We had a, a, a nice little technical chat before before we started recording. It's absolutely a bit of to have you. nothing
1: like it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: thank you for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, let's uh, let's go right the way back to the beginning. When you were growing up, did you want to be a farmer? Did you want to be a journalist or something else entirely?
1: No, I wanted to be a farm. I think, yeah, I know. I wanted to be a farmer, Um, and I got two older brothers, and they weren't that into the middle brother every time he looks at a cow it's just bad cow karma and they just run over walls and break their legs and do horrible things so he was never going to be a farmer the eldest one everyone thought was going to be a farmer but then he as soon as he went to uni he got the hell out and uh yeah he sort of helps a little bit now on the admin side because he's semi-retired the lucky son, and so but <laughs> no I, I did want to be a farmer yeah first job i had was age seven watching a spout on the grain dryer 25p an hour was the deal about 1980-something. Aiden that'd be 1980 or Not 81. Jeez. Yeah. There you go. Stand there, watch that spout. If it blocks up, hit it with that stick. And that's what I did. A whole week of that.
0: And in terms of what the farm was back then, what was your childhood like and, and how has it changed since then?
1: When I was born, we still had some, uh, was it? Yeah, we had dairy for years. My great-grandfather moved from Devon in 1897 to Surrey and uh, he bought his dairy cows And the legend that I was once told by one of the old guys that worked on the farm was that apparently he loaded his cattle and all his chattels onto the train in Devon in 1897. And uh, having milked them first thing in the morning, took them to the station, loaded them on. And so efficient and expeditious was the train running that he was able to unload them at dorking that night bought them to the new farm and milk them now there was probably a lot of artistic license in that story or several days in the middle but it's a nice story nevertheless uh, yeah so they were dairy. they stopped dairying in uh, he had a milk business and then like most of these little tiny milk businesses they they sold out to the local big dairy um after he died in the war and then we stopped dairying when people were being paid to get out in the late 70s. I think the last commercial dairy cows left here about 1979. So I can just remember Frisian cows in a line in the cow shed um, with the old plug-in unit, you know, 70 cows and it took nine years yep. to milk them either end yep. of the day. It wasn't a fast thing, that was for sure. Uh, they're all very friendly and very licky. Though. I remember walking down the troughs the other side and being given a scoop and putting food in for them. Um, so those when we had a house cow, actually, because my dad uh, said to the guys on the farm, well, of course, big perk of the job, we had five men on the farm is you get milk and as uh, part of the deal. And uh, they did you want to you know, go to the milkman and not get it? Or do we will keep a house cow? They said, oh, we'll keep a house cow. And we'll do that. And so um, and they why, all agreed why wouldn't to- you do that? Well, exactly. And they all agreed to milk the house cow. So Blossom, the house cow, was duly installed and she was a Guernsey. And he even had a new bucket, uh, a vacuum pump put in in the buildings where they stopped milking 10 years previous. But it soon became apparent that no one wanted to milk the house cow in the evening because obviously they were all finishing up on the farm religiously at five o'clock when when non-harvest time, etc. And they wanted to get home. So Muggins here got the job. It was just after the the first appointment as grain draft spout technician, uh, about a year after, when I was about eight, I got the job of milking the house cow in the evening after school and used to get my little brown envelope with £2.50 in it every week. And I, yeah, I milked Blossom until those buildings we moved out of. They were a lovely set of Victorian farm buildings, model farm buildings they were, and we moved out of those in 1986.
0: I can say and, I didn't.
1: I didn't actually know you had a career as a dairy farmer. Yeah, yeah, very brief one, uh, <laughs> and uh, very, very. And it's like one of the first micro dairies. I like to think of it as <laughs> you know, it's a. Uh, and we used to make cream and do all that gubbins, and mother used to make butter and. You know, for absolutely no return whatsoever and give it to her mates or whatever. It was all very lovely and idyllic and and all nestled right on the edge of a town in Surrey, which is even more bizarre because you'd have thought we'd be halfway up a hill in Wales or in deepest, darkest Devon in the rolling hills. But no, we were here. Um so yeah, we did that. And the buildings, I suppose I grew up in the farm buildings there, which is next to which was a big model set of the Victorian farm buildings, which is a phenomenal place to learn to play war with air guns and um, nearly set fire to yourself and do all the stuff that you shouldn't do and terrorize your friends when they came around to play and uh, shoot endless rats and whatever. And then those actually, they were all they were all taken away. They belonged to the family trust. And Richard Branson actually turned them into um, into retirement homes. Um, in 1986, and uh, we nearly shot him in the yard, because this bloke with a beard appeared. At the time, we didn't know who it was. I was like, you know, 11. <laughs> and, it, uh, and then, it all, and then who? Oh, it's Mr. Oh, anyway, he, we didn't shoot him, and uh, he was fine, and uh, yeah, the buildings are still there, but they're all lived in by retired folk. Um,
0: that is so probably that was, the best anecdote we've ever had on the podcast. There you go,
1: you see, I uh, nearly shot Richard Brents with an air gun. Yeah, I suppose it all changed then, and what had happened just before then as well, in 1980, when i was 10 um, my my dad died suddenly as they do and uh, so that was a bit of a a turn up and then everything went into turmoil the farm was downsized at that stage we were like beef and arable 700 acres um world slurs combine, five men on the farm you know it was uh, that sort of operation and so it very quickly got slimmed down Uh, my grandfather and my mother just sort of just running a few beef cattle so we reared some calves and then and then that turned from calf rearing to finishing to buying store cattle and then rearing them and making hay for horses, which is what we did for most of my child, well later childhood, I suppose. Yeah, so it was, uh, it was, it was different. Moving around buildings, there was there was plenty going on. There was always plenty to do, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, and and so bringing us right up to date, um, I know that you're doing your calf rearing, Angus crosses. Uh, you got some progeny testing of some older Angus cross cattle. Tell us a little bit about the farm business today.
1: Yeah, so now, so we've got, yeah, I, I suppose we now, we just, we just, rear. So we rear some calves here. We're part of an integrated chain and we rear some calves here and we also do the progeny testing here, which is very interesting, um, seeing what different genetics do and conversion factors. And, that, and that's pretty much it. So we grow maize, we grow grass, we have some agri-environment. We have a bit of diversification on the farm uh, in the sense that we have a, a it's a good one actually, because it's just a 2,000, what was a 2,000 square foot sort of sheep shed general purpose barn it's just full of containers that harm its battery storage and you yep. see one guy every six weeks and fantastic no no, no people not that i'm a grumpy old so but yeah it, it works so that works as a good diversification we occasionally do events on the farm but before that i suppose i did after having done what i did i went to college i went to harper um and then came back in 97 93 to 97 i was at harper came back and then uh, started a sheep enterprise because we hadn't had sheep on the farm for a gazillion years. Um, Suckler cows, realised very quickly I was going to make no money doing that. And then and then I suppose then started a series of like, you know, doing box schemes and selling to the public and lamb box schemes. Right and writer passage. Uh, yeah, it's like, and then you realize either you've got to, do, everyone that's doing this will be going, yeah, we do a lot of turnover. But we don't make that much money. It's a lot of time, but we enjoy the lifestyle or actually, you know, if we're going to do this, we do this really pro and we become a major brand and that's how we do it. So yeah, we realized that we had, we did, had a firewood business at one stage. I used to process about three or 400 tons of firewood a year. Um, and sell that to the good folk that was interesting (laughs) selling it to the good folk of Surrey and South London a few but yeah bizarre places you used to have to deliver it to Um, uh, yeah it was uh, people phoning and screaming at you on Christmas I need logs now (laughs) well yes no I need them now it's Christmas Eve and if I don't have them well it's not my problem you could just order them in October Uh, it was all that sort of government's really delightful direct dealing with members of the public It, it makes you thankful to be a wholesale farmer when you've done that
0: that's for sure that, that, that does partly answer my next question which was because you've got 50 acres of woodland on the farm as well so i yeah. see that that's where that was coming from yeah some of
1: it was yeah we used to buy it in as well we've we've done some with the woodland we've done started to do some well ash removal because we've got the old ash dieback going on um there was a pheasant shoot running that's not there now actually there was a pheasant shoot running on the in that woodland um, and then we used to we quite blestering. Surrey, the most wooded county in the country. So mm. there's plenty of cordwood around here. It's not like being in Yorkshire where you've got to ship it all from Surrey to Yorkshire. Um, so we just used to buy it in through Till Hill or whoever, buy a few loads of that in and chuck it through the processor and season it and sell it, um, which was, yeah, it's fine. But, yeah, again, you got to a point where it was – OK, we're doing all this tonnage. We either scale up or, or or move on to something else. And, and we sort of moved on to something else.
0: This episode is being supported by our primary sponsor, Howden Rural, which is the new name for Aplan Rural. The Howden team shares my passion for giving a voice to farmers. And we are both driven to raise the profile of farming voices to a wider audience. Howden Rural do a lot of work on social media themselves, sharing farming accounts and farming stories. They have a rural community blog which shares farmers' experiences. And they also support a growing number of initiatives that champion UK farmers, including this podcast. So a big thank you to Howden Rural for supporting Meet the Farmers. Let's move back in time in a bit, specifically to your Harper days. And you were, yes, you president there from 96 to 97. I want some Hugh Broom Harper stories, please. Uh, Laundrette was thanks to me. Uh,
1: yeah, no. that was a big thing. Okay. Doing the laundrette. Actually, I was not expecting I... that one. Yeah, there you go. You see, I don't know if there's still a laundrette at Harper Adams. I know it's definitely not in the same place where it was. I it as one of my key uh, key manifesto pledges was to deliver a laundrette, and it, at the time it was quite amusing because we were watching EastEnders. So you know, I, I don't think anyone, no. It was just it was just yeah. I've still got the plaque actually. Someone saved it because they did demolish where it was, and someone sent me the plaque about ten years later, uh, where it was the fit. This was opened by plaque. Um, what else did we do at Harper? When I was social, I was social secretary in the first year, um so that would have been I started. Yeah, my God, it's thirty years ago, isn't it? This well, last month. I mean, it's just scary. Ninety-three. So I was social sec. The disco. Anyone that was there that era will remember that the disco was a um, a fairly rubbish pair of Citronic decks that <laughs> were put on a table and a couple of speeds, like a four hundred watt system and you had to put the security barrier out the safety barrier out cuz clearly i just get mullered in the melee that was the dance floor in what was then known as the new bar cuz i was i didn't make the old bar that was that ceased that turned into the cafeteria when i got there and the so bad was the decks that uh, it was i thought this is ridiculous and bear in mind that i got into doing discos as a kid at home hence why i knew about this stuff and i'm proud to say i think it's still there i haven't been back there for about 20 something years um, but I think it's still there. I see it in pictures. I put the sound system in the roof and the lights that are in the roof in the Harper Bar. So that's one. Oh, that thing
0: that's really a good legacy. Thing. I mean, not yeah, the I'm Andre, very proud of that. But that's a yeah. good legacy.
1: And and actually got the ball rolling as president. Got the ball rolling on the toilet extension that goes out the back of the bar. I assume that's still there because everyone had mucked about getting that away and not getting it away. And I said, right, this is going to happen. So we got that away. Um, but that they started building that as I left. And the other thing I did as well, which I'm particularly proud of this thing, I was the first person to ever book the Wurzels at half Adams. That's another which great of aim. Any modern any modern student would think, oh, they've been going there forever. Now, bear in mind that when I would say so it was the rag ball of 1994, May 94, and I tracked down the Wurzels, who, bear in mind that their uh, their cultural peak was the summer of 1976. Okay, so I was three at the time. Um, when they came to Harper, they were old in 1994. Yeah. I'm amazed to see that they were at serials the other the other <laughs> month. I mean, it was these like, Davros characters on stage. I don't know. But it was like, so I tracked them down, which in those days, it, the internet was embryonic. So it took a bit of... Um, I think there was a thing called the White Book, which was like a list of all agents and artists. And their agent, I remember, was called Wally Dent. And actually, he was based in Surrey, because I remember talking to him on the phone, saying, hello, mate. And he was just up the road, and we had a deal, and it was 1,200 quid. And um, yeah, the Wurzels came to Harper. I mean, they must owe me a serious amount of commission, because I think they've been back every year since. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't understand how they didn't go before then. I know. I was amazed when they said they have never been. Clearly, just no one booked them. Yeah. No one booked them. Uh, so we did that. Yeah, we did. I'm trying to think what else I did at Harper. No, that was enough. It was good fun. It was a great, it's a great thing, isn't it? You get college like that. And uh, my, my degree was complete rubbish, but. Yeah. Did you learn um, anything? Yeah, I think I learned. Yes, you did. Cause I came from, you know, farming in Surrey and suddenly I'm, I'm, I'm hanging out with these guys that are farming in, in Lincolnshire or Scotland or Yorkshire and, and wherever doing on a completely different scale Totally learned loads, absolutely. Had a wonderful sandwich year on a farm in Hampshire doing everything, and uh, yeah, I, I it. it's great, fantastic. And so, I learned loads. My degree was complete rubbish. I got they gave me the honors, but I think for being president, they certainly didn't give it for the academic yes. prowess. Although, bear in mind that my dissertation was about the internet and its use, its impact on agriculture. and and I'm just useless at doing things like that and I literally, I think I knocked it, it was the night of the I'm trying to get this damn thing finished, it was the night of the 97 election and Blair was winning power and I'm there trying to finalise this damn thing which should have been done months before. It was truly awful but it did make some very good points many of which have, uh, you know I'm not saying I'm some sort of futurist but many of which did come to bear at the time people were laughing saying idiot, what are you doing? I mean if I'd actually met someone that could code and a Few million behind it might could be a trillionaire by now, but um That's that beat. didn't happen. Yeah, so it was good fun anyway. It's great fun.
0: Um, and straight away after Harper, what did you do? Because you, you I just didn't came home straight away into into your sort of radio career. So no, I came
1: then? I came home to do the farm and then um realized quite quickly that it was a bit uh obviously we just had BSc because I remember I was SU president when Health Minister Dorrell, Stephen Dorrell, stood up in March of 1996 in the House and said there may be a link between um, CJD, BSE, etc., and everything just went absolute pony. It just went, didn't it? Um, even on our little nano beef enterprise we had at the time, my brother had to go and get a 25 grand loan wow. because the value of everything just dropped off a cliff um, and anyone that was farming then will will remember exactly what happened i mean the whole thing was just turned on its head um so that was going on so when i left in 97 the the, the sort of first two years i was at harper it was pretty good because the pound was seriously weak so uh, i remember the summer of 95 when i was on sandwich in hampshire the uh, you know grain prices were off the scale they were bonkers high um highest they'd been for a long time um, and then yeah came out and as as I got towards the end of my Corey's career came off that high of high prices and happiness and a utter absolute. I mean you think you've got low prices now you think you've got think back to then it was appalling you know 20 quid for a fat lamb and so on and so forth. Yes, stuff cost a lot less then although prices were really low because I remember buying imported Russian AN in 98 and paying um, 38 pound a ton. Wow. 38 or 27 pounds a ton for this pink uh fine AN God, it's probably had some sort of uranium in it. I don't know, but it was very cheap and came on lorries. Diesel was seven pence a litre, uh, because oil bottomed out um with that sort of recession thing that was going on at the time. Um, but then of course, when the election happened, the pound really started to strengthen. So, of course, farm prices got even worse. Um, they'd started to slide before the ninety-seven election. And then as soon as Blair came in, um, it just went boom. Um, and yep. Yep. The, the pound strengthened and away it went. So prices got even less. So we were doing suckler cows, a few calves, um, bought some sheep while I was at Harper and then built those up. Um, we used to be on the old chitty Waitrose Happy Lamb scheme into Guildford. We used to, used to get paid a bit extra. I think it was much. Put a pink tag in their ear, like one of them golf ball, um, the golf tee tags uh, with a number on it, um, which is your unique producer code, and then the code of the lamb before they got into lamb tagging proper. It's ahead of its time, to be fair, to Andrew and the guys that, that were doing it at the time. Um, and that worked. And then we did lambs and we did, yeah, and we sold store suckle calves had absolutely no infrastructure on the farm. We had one set of buildings. The family had sold all the other bits off. Um, no one had done anything on the farm really since my dad died in 84. So the fencing was pretty horrendous. Wow. Um, there wasn't, it was not There was zero infrastructure there. I mean, yeah, it was still, you know, 150 acres. The farm's 280-odd acres, but at the time we had a great chunk of it rented out to a neighbour for arable. Um, so yeah, so mucked about doing that and, and that didn't really move much and it was just losing more and more money and then got to the stage where I'd done a bit of radio before I went to college um, on the local radio station. That was through doing discos and stuff locally and meeting right. people, just being a general idiot and running sound systems and all that old caper and um, and a mate that I'd done that with. Then I did something in Epsom in 93, the summer of 93, one of these 28 day things because um, no, no, they needed someone to do the breakfast show. It was my gap year. Everyone else was working. Oh, you can do it. It's like, oh, I've never done that anyway. It was all right. 28 days by the end, by the 28th show, it sounded all right. Amazing. Um, did that. What did I do then? Then, yes. So the guy that I worked with doing that, uh, who got me to do that, I was talking to him and I was really skint at the time. He said, oh, you can come and do travel bulletins where I work now in London. And it was this, uh, it was Traffic Link. It's called something different now, Inric. But Traffic Link at the time, it was quite a cool business because it was at 29th floor of Centrepoint Tower, um, the glorious 60s listed skyscraper that is still to this day on the corner of Tottenham Court Road and Oxford Street or the other side. And uh used to go to Centrepoint Tower and I got a shift doing initially doing Saturday mornings. Um, that's why I know about where you're now sitting in Norfolk because okay. Broadland 102 was next door because we used yep. to do that. And you'd sit there on an ISDN line and just do different travel bulletins for different people. So you do, you know, Radio Broadland, then SGR, then BBC Northants or whatever, and you just sat there and you had a screen with all the traffic stuff on and you're in this goldfish bowl. It was like a little lecture theatre. All these other broadcasters sat there. Doing this, um, so it was a good. It was a really good training ground. When we used to get really bored, we used to have these two soundproof booths at the end. So imagine you've got like a little two rows of little grandstand lecture theatre with these mic points along, and then there was two soundproof booths at the other end, at far end, and they were for the uh, the the BBC locals that liked a quiet
0: bulletin. Yeah, it's okay.
1: baby, maybe nature. It is the travel type thing, and uh, we used to get so bored on a Saturday. Um, so we used to. We used to, we used to, these booths had like a flap like a maintenance flap, yeah. so if you so you could take the flap down and put your hand through and your hand would appear on the desk where the person was reading the script from, or it would appear near where the script was. So we used to do things like you would be sat there holding the script, reading it, and your hand would appear with a deodorant can and a lighter and set the whole <laughs> thing on fire. And they'd be just like, what? <laughs> and then you'd keep read really quickly, but then your script was burning. So you just had to remember it. And it was just ridiculous what we used to do. We used to do, I shouldn't say, actually, none of these things exist anymore. This particular radio station doesn't exist anymore. Um, it, it was a. I got was, surprised. It was Well, no, it was a thing. It was an AM thing, and it was a country Uh, and western thing in London, and we used to have to pre-record the bulletin, and then you uploaded it to their computer, and it played it out, their travel bulletin. And, again, we got quite bored. So what we used to do is we used to do the travel bulletin, but in the ridiculous accent. And um, we did it for months. No one really knew. It showed how few people were listening, that no one actually worked it out. But anyway so I did that and that's how I started so I used to do that on a Saturday morning and then over time they got me to come in and do um they got me to do uh week random weekday shifts so I'd feed animals in the morning and they'd say oh can you cover a sort of 12 to 7 and then I'd run around do all the animals jump on the train at 10 o'clock and be in London within an hour or so job done do that so I did that and then I suppose it was during that time that the uh foot and mouth thing happened I. Of course. It was February of 2001, wasn't it? Yeah. And uh, so there I am doing that. And one of the girls that um, used to work at the traffic place had got a job at Talk Sport. And I remember uh, it was like day one of foot and mouth. And I'm there doing the Talk Sport 1215 Bulletin. And she comes on the thing in your ear, the talk back, and says, Oh, could you talk a bit about foot and mouth? You're a farmer, aren't you? I said, Well, yeah. yeah. She said, Fine. We'll do the travel, then the outbreak, and then we'll come back to you. And Michael talked to you about foot and, and so by default, I suddenly became this yeah. <laughs> foot and mouth expert, yeah. um, which was the start of thinking, Actually, I could do this journalism thing. And then I suppose what happened was like, I hadn't got any uh, qualifications. I had well, I had a oh, half problems degree, but I didn't have a journalistic degree and at the and it's still to this day you you have to do your law cert to be a journalist so you don't defame anyone or say anything you shouldn't um so i hadn't done all that and then when the 2001 election happened which was delayed i was asked by the local bbc to be one of these stringers where you dialed a special phone line and gave the results before they trusted mobile even though everyone had mobile phones they still put a phone line into the venue even then And you dialed it into the mothership to tell them the result. And I was surrounded by other journalists from other outlets who knew absolutely nothing about what was going on. And I'm being a bit of a political anorak knew exactly what was going. And I thought, well, how are they doing it? And I'm not. And they said, oh, we've done this post-grad thing. So I suppose, okay, yeah, still doing the farming, still doing that. Tractor gearbox blew up in the summer of 2001. I thought, this is just ridiculous. It's going nowhere fast. So I hit the phone. Phone the college, which was the cheapest one that would do a post-grad, which was Highbury College, Portsmouth. It's that esteemed... It's actually quite a few people have been there. Um, And they would do it for 1,200 quid because the one in London was nearly five grand. Um, And I started that course on 9-11. What a day to start a journalism course, by which time I'd sold all the suckler cows. They'd made reasonable money, bless them, because everyone in the north at that stage had started to restock post-FMD. Yeah. And then we'd also sold a load of the sheep out as well. And then we went to, so I started doing that and then did um, yeah, a lot of the farm we put into stewardship, um, arable reversion. That was a good yeah. number for yeah. hundred acres, just top it once a year and get paid a hundred and whatever it was an acre. Uh, and then, yeah, and then I started doing the, did the course and then
0: got a job in radio. Yeah. And then that sort of kickstarted your journalism career, um, yeah. which, which, which yeah, I mean, take me through some of your sort of highlights in terms of what you were covering. Uh,
1: well, ready, I, My first. I used to do freelancing, and then because uh, there was loads of local radio stations then, which there isn't much now because it's all been yeah. homogenised into motherships. Um, so I did uh, freelance bits here and there, like down at Creepy Crawly, down at Radio Mercury, or I went to various things like that. And then I finally found this job. I, I kept. Apl- I applied for these jobs as you do when I'd finished the course in uh, two thousand and two the summer of two thousand and two. And then I um kept I, I got a call back from these people in Reading who were starting this new radio station. And uh, and it was really slow. Like they they he, he, the guy actually phoned me and said, "Oh yeah, come and you know come and have a chat." And then nothing happened. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Okay. And I had to keep phoning them and say, "Come on, look, so I'm grain carting here. I'm bored. I'm not making any money. I've just done this course. I want to do something wacky and exciting that doesn't involve grain cart." Um, Take me so to credding. Reading. Yeah, exactly. And then in <laughs> the end, um, this gentleman uh, got me along. Uh, in he was the most wonderful guy. Him and his brother. His brother had started it. He'd been pulled in by his brother to run it um, his name was tim grundy and anyone ancient listening to this will remember the uh sex pistols interview on uh the granada tonight show it's okay. the classic bit of tv footage where the sex Pistols start swearing at the then very famous bill grundy who was tim grundy's dad um, and he was from manchester and he did not, also not he- from the and- arches No, he'd run radio stations and he'd done, Tim did all sorts of things and he was the most wonderful guy. And yeah, I remember afterwards him saying, he said, "Ah, we had this thing. He said, you know, we had these girls come in that had done work experience at Radio Honor and and they'd done degree courses in journalism and they'd done that. and we had these two girls and then we employed a farmer it was, <laughs> but he did have a he did have a a qualification so yeah reading 107 and it was owned by the uh, part of it was owned by the chairman at the time of the football club John Modaisky. it was in the stadium at reading and i knew absolutely nothing i'm crap at sport I knew nothing about football and i had to and also it was a shared home with london irish so i had to learn Everything. I had to become an expert on whatever it was for championship football and London, the London Irish Heineken Cup or whatever. And uh, yes, so I, I got the job there, and it was good because it started from scratch. And then so we had to we had a month to put it make build a newsroom basically, and then we went on air and off we went. And I was there for about a year and a half. And It was good, good fun
0: yeah and then i mean you were doing talking of your freelance stuff uh, for five years you would do you was writing for farmers weekly as well this is 2004 to 2009 um yeah like that, that sort of period so that was because
1: i so the reading thing went on and then i i, I didn't done my time there did a year and a half it's great fun but the money was rubbish then i saw this job advertised at capital and that's how i went to work there and at the same time uh a mate of a mate came he brought him round and he was doing some work for farmers weekly at the time he said oh they're looking for columnists and i remember showing him around the farm it was just a social thing and he said oh you should speak to mike stones it was who's the guy at the time that was running all the columnists and um so i did so then i just used to do this bi-weekly ranty column um, for five years, which was towards the end, was really it's bad as doing the podcast. It was something different to say every blooming week. How David Richardson did that every week for nine millennia, or however yep. long he did it, just off the scale, really, to knock out 600 words every week and say something relevant. It's tough. I just to do it every other week. Um, and so yeah, no, that was fun. So I used to do that. Yeah, so that was just a quick bash out 600 words first thing in the morning. I got to my desk and and it went into Farmers Weekly. And I was probably, you know, I was young and wacky then. It was like Jane King had just revamped the magazine. Um, average reader was like still 92 or whatever. And uh, yeah, so I was there being the, the gobby little
0: Sanso. yeah, it was all yeah, right. But, but just going back to radio, I mean, you're obviously doing the podcast now. But I mean, do you, do you miss your radio career? Um, no, because I just, move.
1: you know, you move on, don't you? You know, I, I do the podcast thing. I, I I suppose there comes a time when you sort of have to go up and get a proper job or you become an old radio git, don't you? And I uh, wish some people have done successfully. I I, I went from Reading to Capital um, and then that was 2004. I was there for six years. And then by the end of that six years, it was a, I either had to become some, you know, mutant news monkey uh, compliant, um, you know, company man type thing. Or, or do go on and do something else because people you either stayed there and you you know you, you it just but actually there's people there there's some lovely people there's still people there doing the jobs they were doing and I left there in 2010 okay. um who are yeah they're still there doing the same job great fantastic but I needed you know I wanted to move on plus um, my other half was working away a lot um we had the first patterings of tiny feet about to arrive okay, okay. And she was earning more than me so uh, someone needed to stay at home and uh,
0: herd children. So yeah. it must have been quite nice in some ways to get, come back to the farm and, and and start really focusing more on that again.
1: Yeah, it was. I mean, uh, yeah, it was. It was good to do something. The, the, it was tremendous fun doing the the radio stuff. And it's it's like farming. It's stupid hours. And when you actually you know farmers whinge about doing hours, and I know we do hours on farms, but. You do hours on farms, and you walk out the back door at four in the morning, and you know two seconds later you're in the milking parlour or wherever. Yeah. And it is relentless. Don't get me wrong. You know we've all been there, done it in the cow mine or in the grain mine or wherever. It can be relentless. But doing that was, you know, that was that was similar. At four o'clock starts into London for five drive up. I mean, when I first started doing Capital, they had me doing a split shift. Would you believe? So I used to be on air at six. I'd leave here at five, be on air at six finish at 9:20 then I could like go and like you know I was young and energetic then hang around London for most of the day and do nothing and then go back again at half 3 till oh. 7 it's like as bad as milking it's like split shift milking which is again generally you just live down the lane so I used to get the train back I used to get the train back to talking I used to go and check like 50 pet sheep and then have a quick cup of tea get back on the train go back up do my thing and then drive the car which i'd left in the car park at five in the morning drive that back so it was it wasn't yeah it wasn't particularly brilliant for 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 quality of life and it still isn't for the people in it it's relentless it really is you know you're up at stupid o'clock and you've got to be on it um so yeah i did that for um yeah i did that till then and then I, i finished in 2010 and they'd moved me from Capital, then on to LBC, then on to Classic. Well, I was doing all sorts at the time, but off Capital, but just doing LBC and Classic FM. Again, I was just doing the travel. I was just the travel monkey, but I used to do stuff in the newsroom as well. Um, and then, uh, yes, and then I, uh, I say was doing the farm, doing a bit. Uh, but I was doing some other bits and bobs of radio freelancing um, and and uh, as well as sort of trying to refocus. Oh, what do we do with the farm now with these yeah, sheep? yeah.
0: Meet the Farmers is brought to you by Rural Pod Media, the only podcast production agency to specialise in the rural sector. We're on a mission to make rural stories mainstream and help businesses, organisations and communities like you tell your story through podcasting. Podcasting is a fantastic way of connecting with your audience, whoever that might be, getting your message out there and networking with leaders in your niche. RuralPod Media can help you by launching your new podcast or helping you with the technical side. We also provide podcast training and an audit service if you already have a podcast you're not sure where to take it to next. For more information or to book a call, visit ruralpodmedia.co.uk. That's ruralpodmedia.co.uk. Let's bring us nearly up to date um to twenty twenty. I think it must have been with the Farmers Weekly podcast. Um, I assume, yeah. Did Johan pick up the phone and say, We're doing this? Do you wanna join me? How does it work?
1: Um I had, no, I'll tell you what had happened uh, years ago, actually, um, when Jane King was editor, and when I was working at Reading what, Reading 107, uh, that would have been 2003, I remember having a conversation with Jane. I think I must have just started doing their column when I was at Reading, actually, and then I carried on when I was, so perhaps it was two, four. I remember having a conversation with her, have you thought about doing a podcast? Can you imagine it in 2003? Really? Yeah. Oh, and I said, we could wow. do it like this, and I sent her a format, uh, I sent her what it would look like. There I'm am producing That's amazing because new- that
0: really was the early days of podcasting. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, and and it was like I sent her a little thing like it was it was loosely based on the uh the highly informative and entertaining Reading Tonight that
0: we used to present
1: every night on a on a weekday night from 6 till 6.30. Um, but it was, no, it was just features and interviews and da-da-da-da-da. And I remember Jane saying, oh, yeah, it's a bit ahead you know, perhaps not, you know, quite ready for it yet. And how would people listen to it? And, you know, they'd all be dialed into their 286 PCs with an audio <laughs> media player on it. I mean, just for, you know, the copper wire on the dial-up. Um, so, yeah, so that sort of got uh, pushed back. And then I suppose Johan and I, and I'd met Johan at various things, then if you and such like over the years. So I knew Johan and we had a conversation, quite a drunk conversation. I think it was at a Farmers Weekly Awards dinner. For some reason, I'd been asked to go and I said, We really should be doing this podcast. Da, 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 da. You should tell them. Da, 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 da. And then that was like 2016, 17 or something. And then okay. um, that was when this one started. Right. Okay. And then yep. um, what happened then? And then actually, it was when they got bought. So when Reed, who owned Farmers Weekly for many years, sold it to Mark Allen Group, which now have it, uh, Mark Allen Group had a uh, wanted to in, you know expand their digital footprint, which every publisher needs to now. Um, and so Johan phoned up and said, "Oh, hey, you know that podcast idea that we talked about ages ago? Uh, they want to do something with it. Can you make a mock-up?" Well, you're so a patient man. Well, yeah, but it's like farming—you just irons in fires, isn't it? You know, nothing happens overnight. Nothing happens quickly. But if you if you just keep chonking along, it all gets there in the end.
0: Yeah, and like you were saying earlier as well, in terms of content, I mean, to come up with new content week in, week out, and especially style the podcast that the Farmers Weekly podcast is as well, how does that work in terms of production? Is because I assume it's just the two of you. Yeah, it's me, me and him. And some of the other colleagues record stuff, which is great.
1: Um, yeah. On the magazine, I just do. it. I mean, I just effectively work freelance for them. Um, we just have a conversation, like you know, like any newsroom. You have a news meeting. What's going to happen yeah. this week? We're going to cover X, Y, and Z, or this might happen, or that might happen, or we'll go to this show or whatever. And of course, the, th- the challenge with any news is keeping it moving and keeping it engaging. And that's particularly hard in a niche sector. So whether you're, you know, concrete moulding weekly or uh, vet injection monthly or whatever the niche thing is, it's blooming hard work because farming at least is seasonal and cyclical. The news agenda, you know, don't miss our lambing special this week, uh, you know, which we publish the first week of February every year, which is a challenge in itself to write it differently every and to to, to reangle it. The Combined Buyer's Guide for, you know, it's every, it's this, so so you've got, it's great that it's it's seasonal and it's cyclical, but at the same time, the flip side is, it's not like general news where, you know, some pretty horrendous things happen and some, some lovely things happen in the world. Um, and it's the broad spectrum of general news. So with uh, stuff like Farmers Weekly, it's specialist. So, yeah, we just have a chat, see what's going on. Um, if there's a bit of argy-bargy going on. Uh, between whoever and whoever will cover that. You might get some rando scientist in that's said something amazing um, that actually people need to hear to start to think about because I think all too often in farming we get totally – because we're going at 200 miles an hour, trying to spin loads of plates, we get very vexed when things change and when people want to do this or want to do that or this regulation or that. And if you can get someone in to give a sort of satellite view and say, well, this might be why you want to do that in the long term – um, so, yeah, it's it's and encountering some of the more populist stuff. It's it's a mixture of mishmash of everything, really.
0: Yeah. Well, I've got you here. I just want to talk about politics for a little bit because we are just coming out of the conference season and I'm sure you'll have an opinion on this. So, I mean, the question is, I suppose, what would a change of government mean for farming, which is almost I mean, I'm not going to call it, but it's almost inevitably going to happen next year. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bank on it. Given what's happening in the world at the
1: moment, I absolutely would not. I would not count any chickens. You wouldn't do anyway, even if you're polling twenty points or yeah. twenty-three points ahead. But given what's going on at the moment, um, here we are. Uh, yeah, who knows? But look, assuming that does happen, what does? I keep saying it on the podcast at some point, if we are to accept that we need to reach net zero by 2050 as a nation, if we are to accept the basic principles of global warming, and I get that some people don't, but let's face it, it's happening. We see it day in, day out and what we do on farm. At some point, not just for farmers, but the society in general, someone is going to have to start handing out the political cup of cold sick, which, you know, no longer can you go on holiday to the Bahamas unless your airplane flies on. You know, you can get a ride on a seagull or you're going to have to start holiday. You've got to cut back your consumption. You've got to stop having a family car. You've got to stop... You know, all of the nasty things that are going to have to happen if we're to hit net zero and hit our emissions targets, governments are going to have to start bringing these things in. And I think that, you know, the next administration, if the next administration was to win with a considerable majority so it can effectively do what it wants for the five-year period, if we are to hit those targets, it's going to have to be brave enough, whatever colour it is or makeup it is, to be able to do that, to get us underway. Because we're, we're here talking about it, you know, just in agriculture, there's plenty of confusion around emissions profiling, around benchmarking, um, how you do it, what you should be attaining to. You know, there's, there's a I would say there's a fairly visceral lack of leadership there. I know people have come out and said big statements, we're going to be net zero by this, we've done that or the other. But in terms of getting everyone together in a group and saying, right, guys, this is how we're going to march. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to help the people that aren't sure, use the people that are good at it to work out how we all do it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's just within agriculture. But generally in government, yeah, there's going to have to be that big, um, that big commitment to actually, yeah, make these things happen. Because if they don't, it's just going to fester for another five years and we're going to end up, you know, we wasted the last well, what have we actually achieved in the last five or six years? Very little. I mean, we've got a new Good support question. system. Yeah, I mean, England, we've got a new support system. Our poor friends in Wales and Scotland are sat there still looking over the precipice thinking, "What's ha- what happens now? You know, the Welsh government, yeah, we, it's time to get on. And, and and it's there's some big decisions
0: to be made at every level for everybody. Mm. And they'll also, there um, I say, soon enough be changes at the uh nfu in terms of leadership as well I, I don't know whether you've heard uh heard heard minette's interview um on the rest is politics um pod i did i actually listened to it in the car the other day uh, i don't often I listened listen to it, to it yesterday yeah
1: yeah and um she's done a fantastic job hasn't she um and Amazing. so that's a seriously hard you know everyone thought the big man, Peter Kendall had done a big job and he had, he did a fantastic job. And then along came a minute and did another fantastic job. So there's some big boots for someone to step into there, whoever that yeah. may be in terms of doing it. Um, It is a, you know, it's a, it does a, it's a unique organization in terms of what it can do in terms of what it achieves and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, no, there's, 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 there's plenty to play for there. And, and, you know, like I say, back to what we just said about government and changing and actually kicking on and, and making stuff happen to hit these various targets as well, as well as all the other stuff. The challenges going on with the world, with the weather, with war, with crazy markets, spikes in commodities, et etc. et cetera. You've got to do all of that and deliver people's food on a plate at the end of the day as well. So, you know, none of it's easy, quite exciting, but none of it's easy.
0: Just a little more about our primary sponsor, Howden Rural, which is the new name for Aplan Rural. Same people, different name. Howden Rural provide bespoke insurance cover for farms and estates. This could be for anything from tractors and machinery to a new exciting diversification venture. So for more information, visit howdeninsurance.co.uk forward slash rural. Let's bring this back to you, uh, just before we round off. Um, you've got the podcast going on, you've got stuff on the farm going on. What's what's next? What's next in the life of the Hebrew? I don't know. Just carry on, just keep keep
1: doing what we can. I do a bit of stuff for the NFU locally. Um, I do Yeah, no, I'll just carry on doing whatever, you know, whatever opportunity comes along. There's always something to do, isn't there? There's plenty of challenges. There's lots to be excited about. Um, So, yeah, just keep engaging, keep improving, keep moving forward. End of. It's simple as that, really, isn't it? That's good.
0: Uh, We're going to do the quick questions, um, which are a little bit of fun. But um, first is, what colour tractor? red, blue or green? Not bothered as long as it starts and it works and it's the right money. I swear honestly this is literally this that has been the answer that nearly every single guest who I've started I've, I've really? only been doing these the last four episodes and pretty much everyone has said But that. that's good isn't it because people exactly. are you know
1: I think people get over obsessed with people get over obsessed with all that sort of stuff and it's nice that they get attached to their tractor but you know you obviously you've got to be kind and compassionate and look after it but equally you know it's a tractor at the end of the day
0: <laughs> Uh if you had to do one and one only uh, what would it be uh lambing carving season um, a harvest season or milk every day. Oh, crikey. I wouldn't do milking every day. I did that when I was eight. No, I do. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Let's go lambing.
1: A bit of okay. grain cart at the end. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah. Bit of everything. Uh, your favourite book? Uh, favourite book. Actually, one book, I came across it when I was doing, when I did my postgrad and it did change my mind on so much stuff. Uh, when I was So it would be 2001-2 two, and I was basically doing Uh, Had to do this project on recycling. It was a, you know, we had to make these pack radio little mini programs. And I chose to do recycling. uh, And I did it. And uh, I ended up going to interview the local, our local representative of the Green Party here where I live in Surrey. And it was this lovely chat. Funny enough, he he was a proper tank top, top, woolen tank top engineer man. Um, He used to run the CFAX. Uh, That was his job, running CFAX on the BBC at Television Centre. And um, he told me, you should read this book. It's a new book that's just come out. And I can't remember who wrote it, but it was called Green Capitalism, The Next Industrial Revolution. And I read that book, and do you know what? It was so ahead of its time in terms of what it was talking around, in terms of emissions, in terms of resource usage, in terms of obviously establishing the, the warming patterns, and etc., etc., etc. So yeah, that was a bit of a that was a seminal moment in the old mind of thinking. Actually, this is more here than just doing this, this, and this. You've got to think outside the box a bit on this. The nitrogen thing. I remember standing up, doing the farmers week as a farmers week columnist, standing up that cereals. I think it was 2007. They asked me to do some seminar thing. And I stood up and talked about the nitrogen. I talked about how unsustainable the ammonium nitrate cycle was and how we needed to think about, you know, if oil... At the time, everyone was talking about peak oil. We're all going to go to hell in a handcart because peak oil is going to strike by 2012. There'll be no oil left in the world. No one was thinking about emissions and the lobbying of the oil companies, et cetera, is such that they'd deferred the whole emissions thing, you know. Yeah. Um, and I remember standing up saying, well, we've got to think about, you know, how we do mixed cropping and how we do this. And and actually think about that, you know, a third of the, two thirds of the energy, what is it, at the time, the, the book, early 2000s, the numbers were that. The amount of energy that goes into producing, say, a ton of ammonium nitrate in megajoules, you know, the deliver, the calorific delivery from the plant having applied it was a third of the energy that had gone in. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it is unsustainable this cycle. And I remember standing up and saying that, again, utterly shouted down, hey, you idiot! What do you know? Yeah. <laughs> You need to go back to Surrey, Son, where, you know, put your blooming caftan back on and all that old caper. And here we are now talking about how do we use no nitrogen? Yeah. Isn't the that. harbour process unsustainable? So that was a big book. Yeah. Green Capitalism, The Next Industrial Revolution. What a book. Talked about hybrid cars in a really weird way. Really? But actually, it's totally what's happened. Yeah, absolutely. It talked about, I remember it talked about battery it said if everyone had a hybrid car in the U.S. at the time in the late '90s, 94% of cars in the U.S. were parked at any one time. Okay, and if that's the basis, and if everyone had a hybrid car that basically generated a patch, uh, had a little engine in it that filled the battery up, or or had a hydrogen fuel cell, which is slowly getting there, even now, 20 years later, um, that when they then plugged their car back into the grid when they got home that effectively those 96% cars that are parked at any one time, if they were all plugged in, it would effectively power the US with the excess power off the batteries.
0: What a great book. Next question. Great, great plug. Yeah, final questions. Uh, Hugh Broom, your message for the public. Any message, what would it be? A message for the public. Uh, thanks for listening to Windy Farmers. Because uh, uh-huh.
1: we are whingy, miserable so-and-so's, aren't we? And the public are always so supportive when you're on-farm doing stuff or whether they're buying the produce, you know, buying your produce out of shops um, and uh, obviously paying their taxes to pay for things like SFI and all the other wonderful grants that we have available to us. Um, so, yeah, the message to the public is thank you for listening. Keep Keep listening to little messages like buying the right gear or putting your dog on a lead or picking up dog poo or whatever, um, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, thanks for listening and keep buying. And, and we're with you right the way through. We, you know, we generally, we won't go on strike. We'll keep keep feeding you. And uh, your message to farmers? Stop whinging, move on. Yeah, uh, it's it's the flip of what, the yeah. start getting a bit professional, start thinking about what you're doing. It's tough, it's horrendous, but you can't carry on doing it as you've always done it, but you've got to evolve having said that it's a mixture of everything you know we had some people around the farm the other day some local politician types and they were talking about stuff and um and i and whenever i do a little walk around the farm for whoever it is and i'll say look you know it's i've said it for years the future is about taking something out of every box it's not about just being organic or just being dave high tech or just being whatever it's about Making the most out of what you've got and at the same time remembering the saying that if you stand in the same field long enough, nothing ever changes because you generally end up going back to square one because the basic principles is agriculture as such. You know, it's about growing stuff. There will be fundamental changes in how you grow that. You know, you might go to growing it in a in a in a in a in a stacked environment or using hydroponics or whatever, but the basic principles at the moment are the same until some big thing happens. So in terms of farmers, yeah, it's about making the most of what we've got. There's so much going on potentially that we could do going forward in terms of there's so many challenges, but there's so much going on in the future, whether it's around, you know, genetics. Uh, whether it's about uh, the the tech that's uh, that's appearing, AI. There's so much to be excited about. And we've got to infuse and excite to get the next generation in. So if you, every time you moan and whinge, um, all that does is just, oh, well, I'm going to be a footballer instead. You know, well, I don't want to be a farmer. Um, so, yeah, there's there's loads to be excited about. Keep thanking the public. Keep feeling lucky for what you're doing. If you're not happy with it, move on. Do something else. It's not Science. a problem. You know, it's simple, but yeah, I, I just despair at people that whinge about the smallest things because the challenges facing us are so huge. And if we're going to counteract those, then we need to be utterly together in terms of how we move forward.
0: Fantastic. And finally, apart from the Farmers Weekly podcast, of course, uh, your recommendation <laughs> for a blog, podcast, social media account, or perhaps radio show um, to listen to, to follow, uh, can be farming, non-farming, anything you'd like.
1: I used to like, yeah. Do you know on social media? I just now there's just so much farming on social media, it's almost like overload. It's everywhere. If I say another, if I see another video of a blooming forage house, look at our tractor ploughing. Oh we shut up. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I don't, but I'm sure Mrs. Miggins on 32 Acacia Avenue thinks it's wonderful. And yes, it's doing a great job showing people what happens on farms. Get me wrong, me personally, absolutely. Um but so maybe not, listen- not one of those then. No, not one of those. I'd be, i just, yeah, I mean, anything really. I mean, I I'd sometimes you just randomly pick podcasts and listen to them, usually in the car, you know, um, that Beyond Politics one uh, that you were talking, not what it's called, the one that Manette was Rest, on the other Rest day. is Politics, yeah. is Politics with Rory Stewart and um, Alistair, what's his name? Uh, Ex-Campbell. Campbell, PR man. Yeah, that's good. They do a nice job of that. It's a bit over edited, but it's all right. I mean, all of those things are quite good, aren't they, in terms of uh, the specialism stuff, anything specialist. I used to really like, actually, it's probably the the, the tie dye in me, the one I used to like, and they've stopped making it now, and I don't know why, um, Patrick Holden. I've always been a big fan yes. of Patrick Holden. Patrick's a bit left field, but he always has been. And I remember when I was doing Farmers Weekly, he invited me very kindly when he was running the Soil Association, invited me around, um, went around Highgrove. And it was the most wonderful experience. You know, it was it was like, wow, this is just like some utopia, very organic and lovely. And David uh, was the farm manager there at the time. Amazing thing. Um, Patrick Holden used to do the Sustainable Food Trust podcast. Yeah. And that used to have some really interesting people on it. And I used to, That was one I used to regularly, there was a few Anaraki radio ones I used to listen to as well, but that one I used to, and I noticed the other day I was looking for it thinking, oh, and they've stopped doing it, which is a shame because yeah. that was a nice
0: Ad- one. Adele, if you're listening and I think you are, please, please bring it back because I, yeah. I completely agree. There was some really good stuff on there. And I like these sort of slightly left field
1: ones or, you know, you go and speak to Fran middlehoner at Cambridge, California, Davis University. You know, world lead on methane, and 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 that is like that's what you should be listening to, because there are solutions and there are answers to all of these questions. But you've got to get out there and you've got to open your mind and you've got to listen to them. So yeah, anything like that, I'm, I'm
0: there. Well, Hugh, it's been it's been a journey. Thank you so much for today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thanks for having me. Uh, That is it for today. Um, Big thanks to Hugh for coming on the show. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you're listening. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Uh, Next time, um, we'll be heading over to the States, and I'll be speaking with dairy and beef farmers, respectively Tara van der Dussen and Nick Leek Kovarik. Thanks again to Hugh for today and to our primary podcast sponsor, Howden Rural Insurance, for supporting the show. Please see the show notes for more information and for any links mentioned today. For now, though, I'm Ben Eagle. This has been Meet the Farmers. Thank you very much for listening. And I hope you all have a great week.